first of all, thanks for doing this. I Pleasure. definitely appreciate meeting you. So when I think about your very versatile, very unique career, producing, uh, there's a lot of game show appearances and writing, um, you know, uh, sort of award shows involvement, and then obviously your work at Tisch and also at Columbia. It's kind of interesting. Um, you know, I, I on some level don't know where to start, but I think a good place, uh, based on my experience, is to start with something more recent that I just saw very, um, you know, not too long ago, which is Group. So Group, um, which is a web series about group therapy, uh, about, um, you know, several sort of patients in a session with Dr. Zizel, right? That's that's, that's right. Elliot Zizel. You're right. Uh, and, you know, when I first saw it, I, um, I didn't really know what to expect because this is my field. I'm in psychiatry. So I've definitely been in the position where I believe Ezra, who's kind of coming in, right, as a, an outsider or a visitor, um, has been and has this challenge of acclimating himself to the group, but then also not making it about him. So what, what led you to that project specifically? How did you get involved? Because you're producing, right? I'm one of the producers. Yeah, yeah, I'm an executive producer on the, the web series. Uh, so this was created by a brilliant filmmaker named Alexi Lloyd, who I knew uh, originally as an executive. We were both uh, exiles or expatriates in London at the same time mm. in the early 90s. I was working at Channel 4, and he was working yeah. at Pefe. And then we connected years later, and he showed me uh, um, what he'd done on the first season of Group. Uh, and then I jumped on uh, and helped him finish that up, and then... Uh, together we uh, worked on the second season, uh, both of which are available on YouTube. And I was just so excited by what Alexi had done because he had uh, he was adapting a novel uh, called The Schopenhauer Cure by mm -hmm. a, uh, a novelist and therapist named Irvin Yalom. Mm -hmm. But uh, he had taken this series of extraordinary <laughs> creative leaps yeah. uh, in first realizing that uh, he wanted to uh, have a real therapist... Uh, because, as he says, you can't replicate the music of therapy sure. through written dialogue. Yeah. Uh, and as he said, uh, this is one of Lexi's best lines, uh, if Denzel Washington plays a jazz trumpeter, you'll believe him for about five minutes, <laughs> but you couldn't believe him for two hours. Yeah. You know, at some point, you actually need to get Wynton Marsalis. Right, right, and, right. Uh, so that was his first instinct, was the, the therapist has to be played by a real therapist, and then he realized the, the patients uh, would be actors, but brilliant improvisational actors exactly. who are uh, all prepared in the method that I think we're familiar with more from improvisational dramas, mm -hmm. uh, excuse me, improvisational comedies like uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm yeah. or the Christopher Guest movie. SCTV. Where everyone, yeah, everyone has a scenario that they're working on. Right. And Alexi has spoken individually with each actor saying, here's what you want, here's what you feel about this person, yeah. uh, but none of them know what any of the others know. Right. And uh, Elliot, the therapist, doesn't know any of this. Yeah. He's just doing what he does every day in okay. the group that he's done for 40 years. And the result is just electric because it feels like a real group. Yeah. And uh, the, the, even though the actors are playing characters, they are also bringing an enormous amount of themselves to the material. Yeah. And everybody just... Uh, feeds off each other's energy and the result is something that doesn't feel like anything else I've seen. And I should back up to say, uh, one of the, you, you alluded to my uh, very checkered and up mm. and down career. And one of the <laughs> things I did was I was uh, one of the executives on the film Goodwill Hunting. Right. And while the film was very successful and I, I'm very fond of it, uh, everyone who worked on that movie, including me, had been through therapy, yeah. and we all knew that that's not how therapy works. Sure. Um, I so. know about that. So you worked with a Jungian, a Jungian analyst, right? Boy, you, you've done your homework. The uh, Can't Take My Eyes Off of You. I read that. You're right. I read oh that on God, a plane. I'm so impressed. Uh, <laughs> it was great. I couldn't put it down. Oh. It's kind of interesting, though, um, and I definitely want to kind of link that with your sort of growing up and your background. But sure. just but let me back up a moment yeah. to say yes. Yeah. So I had, I, I had been through therapy. Right, right, right. I think everyone in Goodwill Hunting had been through therapy, yeah. and yet we were putting forward a vision of therapy, uh -huh. you know, as famously encapsulated by the scene in which uh, Robin Williams just hugs Matt Damon and says, it's not your fault over yeah. and over again, yeah. that that's not how therapy works. But it's how therapy works in a Hollywood movie. Yeah. And even though 
you know, the, the, the film did very well. I felt guilty about it for decades because it was not a very accurate representation of therapy. And when uh -huh. I got to group, I thought, this is actually a way for me to psychically atone by oh, putting out something Redemption. that actually is probably the closest uh, um, representation of what uh, therapy is actually like of anything I've seen in entertainment. Yeah. Um, but oddly, the person who kind of absolved me is Dr. Elliot Zizel, who's the, the guiding light of group, sure. uh, because he said Good Will Hunting is actually the only movie therapy uh, that he likes, because mm. even though it's not how therapy works, he likes Robin Williams as a therapist. He actually thinks Williams is using a lot of very solid therapeutic techniques, yeah. and that Williams' approach to the role is very much the approach of a good therapist uh, uh, to, to, to that process. Definitely. Well, I think it's interesting, I think in both, uh, both projects, both Goodwill Hunting and Group, that there's this sense of openness and uh, there are no boundaries, uh, including from the therapists themselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, Robin says so much about his own life, his That's own right. history. I mean, he's, he's threading the guy over the painting, right, <laughs> that scene. So it's kind of interesting, but he's bringing, they're both bringing in themselves in a way that you're not necessarily used to seeing. You're used to thinking about therapists as very uh, sort of objective and have this unbiased and they have no prejudice when they come into the room, but that's not really how the world really works, right? Yep. But then coming back to that, so, and then I definitely want to talk about the Miramax projects. Sure. I mean, that's a big thing. But in terms of your growing up, when you, or let's even talk about the book. When I think about the book and I think about the shows that were on and that juxtap juxtaposition of all the different, um, from procedural shows to uh, the talk shows, uh, I remember that Steve Allen appearance on the Johnny Cochran show, which it's kind of a mystery why that didn't continue to go. But <laughs> It's funny because that sort of parallels what television is now. Judge Judy is still on. Mm -hmm. I don't know if Sex Court is still on, but I imagine that a lot of other shows are still on. So when you were there in that period, because that was in 99, right? So that yeah, was... it was in 1999. Just to make clear, this is a book that I wrote uh, called Can't Take My Eyes Off of You, One Man, Twelve Days, uh, yeah. so One Man, Seven Days, Twelve Televisions, which was about uh, a week that I spent watching 12 television sets at once and yeah. sort of cataloging everything I saw. And yeah, it was it was September 1999, which turned out to be sort of the the last gasp of old television that was dominated by the broadcast networks right. and uh, you know, sort of the original wave of basic and premium cable. And just before cable original programming exploded and uh, uh, reality shows exploded, and uh, and then ultimately streaming and all of television exploded. Yeah. So it, it it's. It's sort of like, uh, I don't know, uh, Kal-El being rocketed to Earth as Krypton yeah. exploded. And, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, so my book is sort of like that, uh, you know, uh, little foundling representation of a, a dead civilization. But it's kind of interesting. I mean, you brought up a lot of points there, but there are some gems in that book. Like you mentioned... Uh, that show Zoom, which you've seen. You love that oh, show. I did love that and show. And there's that, is that the polka dot character that says, um, you know, you're going to have, at one point, uh, everything that you need to see is going to be able to fit in your pocket. <laughs> so that happened. It happened. So that was a prophetic statement. It's true. Where, did, where do you think that came from? Is that just when the lines between network and cable got really blurry? Yeah. Well, that, you know, first you had the, uh, I actually think kind of the secret hero of television is actually, uh, of all people, a, a suit, uh, Jeff Bucus, who mm. uh, for a while was running HBO and then ran all of Time Warner. Yeah. Because he was the person, the first person, I think, who figured out if things go the way it looks like they're going to go, eventually all movies will be available to everyone on all, at all times through all platforms, yeah. which means that HBO's, uh, at the time, business model, which was to show uncut theatrical movies yeah. for 90% of their uh, airtime uh -huh. was unsustainable. Uh, and that to compete in a world where a Netflix, which didn't even exist, but which he saw coming, yeah. would be possible, HBO would actually have to massively increase its original programming, and in doing so would have to create original programming that people would want to pay for right. that would be better or different than anything they could get in on existing platforms. And HBO then did that, and that gave you The Sopranos, yeah. and Sex in the City, Six Feet and, Under, uh, yeah. Six Feet Under, and all the first wave of uh, you know what I think of now as the golden age of television. And that then 
was the rising tide that lifted all boats. Showtime had to compete with that. Right. And basic cable had to compete with that. TNT and FX yeah. had to compete with that. Sure. And then streaming had to rise to that level and exceed that and create things that that wasn't giving you. And it was this virtuous circle that actually, I think, led to where we are now, where you have really the best television you've ever seen yeah. all over the place, except there's so much of it. And of course, as there's so much great stuff, there is so much terrible stuff. Yeah. And you know, we're now li living in such a cluttered landscape that we couldn't possibly catch up with all the good stuff. And we, you know, couldn't even catch up with all the bad stuff if we tried. Well, that's like your uh, experiment. I mean, you thought when you started that the ratio to, you know, good to bad was going to be like one to three or something, and that it ended up being like one to a hundred or one that's to a thousand. Right. So, I it's mean, the same now. Did you uh, did you expect that that would that model of cable and the networks would continue to survive based on the streaming explosion that you kind of predicted? I sure didn't see it coming. Yeah. But in retrospect, of course, I should have. Yeah, it's kind of interesting though. I mean, um, I remember the soaps um, because you had a friend and you didn't really understand soaps because you thought this you is really kind of... You read the book, I'm so impressed. <laughs> it's a good book. I mean, it's, you thought that there were... Um, but one thing that was profound that your friend said was that the reason why soaps are so popular, the reason why they work is that they cross lines and they're also slow enough. So if you miss a couple of weeks, you can come back to it and you're not necessarily missing that much. Whereas if you look at um, network television, um, it's a very much on a 24-hour cycle. So wherever you tune in, whether you tune in in the morning, which you tended to do, uh, and then you tune out at night, whether um, you know it's like seven or eight, you're still missing a big chunk of that 24-hour TV thing. So question about that, there are a lot of journalists that you mentioned in the book that ended up doing things, I guess, for the money, right? Um, and I, w I wonder, is that really what they wanted to do? Or do you think that they were discontent enough with being talking heads that they wanted to go back to original journalism? What, uh, who are you talking about in particular? So, um, I mean, the things that come to mind, I mean, Regis is an example, uh, I guess, I mean, but maybe yeah, he's well, like a... Regis was never a journalist. He yeah. was always an entertainer. Uh, do you um, think that's what he wanted? Do oh, you absolutely. I, I got to meet him uh, once because he was the host of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire when yeah. I was on Millionaire. And I have to say, he was incredibly kind and, and warm and, and welcoming. Uh, but... Uh, he was in his element. That's yeah. what he did. He he had. I think he logged more hours of television on air in the 20th century than any other human being. He's like and, a real journeyman. Yeah, yeah and that uh, I don't think he could have been happier doing what he was doing. Well, do you, I mean, do you think he enjoyed being with Kathleen all day with the Siegfried and Roy Tiger and yeah, she's beating him did. and stuff? Okay, I think that's what he signed up for. I mean, he was growing on a millionaire. He was kind of yeah, he kind I mean, of defined that show. Let's put it this way. There sh I'm sure there are plenty of examples of people who sold out, yeah. you know, and weren't doing what they wanted to do for money, but I don't think Regis was one of them. I think he was pretty happy doing what he was doing. So let's go back. So um, you mentioned that uh, Dick Van Dyke show was one of your favorite you shows. Bet. And um, what's kind of interesting, interesting parallel, um, you know, not to make it about me, but uh, I did a, a psychiatry internship a couple of years ago, and uh, it was only my second or third day. I was on the night shift or weekends, and um, I was kind of freaked out, to be honest, because uh, it was a new element for me. But what was on was uh, Dick Van Dyke's, uh, I think it was the Kennedy Center Honors, uh, I guess before he had passed. And that definitely helped sort of calm things down. There are people singing along with, um, you know, his programming and the music and stuff. What about that show? And Carl Reiner was the master behind that. What behind that, behind that show do you think was so the zeitgeist for you in terms of how you felt about it? Well, what, what that show did, what Carl Reiner did, and I don't think people quite realized for decades how groundbreaking it was, was it was really the first TV series in which the characters were actual human beings living actual human lives. Uh, something that Carl Reiner used to do is he would start every week talking to the writers saying, what happened to you this week? Because mm. that's where our stories are going to come from, yeah. not from the other sitcoms that you watched this week, but from what happened to you. Um, it... It, that was revolutionary. No one had ever done that. If you look at all the television comedy before that, yeah. it's all, you know, some of it is very clever. I Love Lucy is wonderful yeah. stuff. And I Love Lucy, honestly, was a little closer to, you know, Lucy and Desi's life. I think there, there's a little harbinger of what Carl Reiner did. But it's still, 
you know, it's exaggerated, it's zany, yeah. or it's like, you know, uh, Leave it to Beaver and Father Knows Best, where it's just sort of bland yeah. and stock. Um, no one had done what Carl Reiner did, which was to actually make uh, something that was funny and heightened and delightful and performed by brilliant comic performers, but really coming out of actual people. Right. And that then it leads to all kinds of things. That yeah. leads to all the uh, MTM shows of the 70s, like the Mary Tyler Moore show yeah. and the Bob Newhart show. What about that, the Honeymooners? Uh, yeah, actually, you're right, because the Honeymooners, it's not at all true to Jackie Gleason's life, because he's this, you know... More childless couple, rich, right? yeah. rich and successful yeah. uh, television star. Yeah. But at the same time, yeah, there, there's, there's, there's a truth to that show that uh, you know it's about poor people. Mm. How often has television been about poor people? Right. Um, you know, that one of the things that makes it work. Where did you, so you grew up in New York? I, no, I grew up in Arlington, Virginia. Oh, really? Yeah. So, but you're didn't you have a parent that was involved in like a quiz, a quiz show? My mother has yeah. produced the same high school quiz show. Uh, it's academic for uh, fifty eight years. So you grew um, up in that? Were you on the I, set and stuff? I, I did. I grew up on the set and in the control room, and uh, you know, watching my mother write the questions at home. Did, uh, did that bring forward an interest in trivia? It brought forward an interest in trivia, especially because as I got older, uh, you know, my high school had a uh, team that competed on the show, but I couldn't be on it because it, I, you know, I'm ineligible. My mother, so yeah. my mother was a producer. So I think that's one of the reasons that I then became a game show contestant on Jeopardy and Millionaire and Wheel of Fortune, and probably also because of the kind of person my mother was or is, uh, in that she is interested in trivia and competition and game playing. You know, it's probably why I, you know, became a tournament Scrabble player. And, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, she, she's certainly, you know, been a huge influence on the directions my life took. But one of it is seeing my mother really enjoyed her job. You know, she was producing television, yeah. and that was a very satisfying way to make a living. What did your father do? Uh, my father is a lawyer, a labor lawyer. Um, who has also, on the whole, enjoyed his job, but yeah. uh, not as much as my mother did, which is probably I, I, why I went to film school and not law school. Were you encouraged to go one direction or the other? No, they were very supportive of me, really, pretty much any direction. So, what kind of what kind of kid were you? I mean, what did you uh, what did you watch? What kind of planted the seed? I watched seed? everything. Everything. I was I was just omnivorous. I I don't remember any time when, you know, there. I guess there were a couple things I didn't watch. Uh, I, what didn't I watch? I probably didn't watch... I didn't watch a lot of Westerns. I didn't mm. watch a lot of soap operas. But boy, I watched just about everything when I was a kid on television. And then in movies, uh, uh, watching... Of course, when I was a kid in the 60s and 70s, you had movies on television. Yeah. You had newer movies at night on the networks and older movies all day, yeah. <laughs> all late night uh, on, on the syndicated uh, stations. Uh, I became really obsessed with the Marx Brothers when I was, mm. I think, uh, nine or ten. Yeah. And that then led me to almost everything in my life. That led me to, you know, old movies and the history of movies and uh, the history of entertainment and, you know, the history of, uh, you know, humorous writing and satire and uh, I don't know where it stops. I'm, I'm still obsessed with the Marx Brothers all these years later. What about comedians? Like, you? I know you mentioned Lenny Bruce in the sure. book. I mean, was that was that the thing, too, for you? Yeah, well, I obviously was too late to see Lenny Bruce, yeah. uh, but was just fascinated by comedy and especially by people like Bruce and Richard Pryor, uh, yeah. who really you know pushed the envelope in terms of what was acceptable to say on stage and what was acceptable to talk about. That and then also just not hiding behind uh, an image exterior, which it seemed like that was... That was right. I mean, Richard definitely did that at first, uh, but then he kind of seemed to evolve, um, you know, all the way to the Sunset Live special right. and really became his own his own guy. So then, I, and it it probably connects to the Dick Van Dyke show thing too, which mm. is yeah, he, he his comedy was brutally honest. Yeah, in a way, I, I got to see him on stage once near the end of his life. Um, he was dying, wow. and he had to be carried on stage at the Comedy Store on Sunset Boulevard. Wow, and he did a blistering routine about what it was like to be dying. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it took my breath away. I tried, I was at HBO at the time. I tried desperately to get them to do it as a comedy special and they wouldn't do it because they thought it was too bleak. But 
oh man, do I wish that had been preserved. Yeah, definitely. So what is, what is the uh, covenant of hexagram? <laughs> My God, have you done your homework? That yeah. was a, a a club that I founded in uh, high school. It was a, a social club for nerds, basically. Okay. Uh, you know, we played Dungeons and Dragons, and oh, wow. uh, you know, went to see uh, Star Trek: The Motion Picture when it opened, and uh, th- there there were all kinds of clubs for everyone except the nerds, and so. A uh, friend and I founded one so that even us nerds had somewhere to go. Yeah. So you were always interested in kind of the sci-fi, Star Trek element? I was. When I was a kid and a teenager, I went to science fiction conventions and I read science fiction, et cetera. And then at some point, uh, um, in, some point in college, I just kind of went cold turkey and have actually been, you know, almost completely out of it since then. Why did you go to cold turkey? Because you want to be cooler? No, I think because, honestly, it got cooler and cooler as it went on. That's true, Nerds run the world now. I think it was just that I got more interested in that other side, in in trying to replicate uh, and represent life as it is lived by actual people. Mm -hmm. So so then after college, I mean, uh, you go to Yale, right? I did. Did you, uh, was there anyone, I think you went with, uh, wasn't Jodie Foster kind she of around? in my year, yeah. So did you get to kind of interact with her? And I, 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 I talked to her exactly once, uh, but I went to see her on stage hmm. in the one, I think, play she's ever done, the one show oh, wow. she did at, uh, uh, at college in which she was so gobsmackingly brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and that I'm, I'm sorry that she hasn't gone back to Broadway or whatever. Why do you think that is? Uh, it's because uh, right after that, uh, John Hinckley oh, uh, yeah. tried to assassinate Ronald Reagan, and uh, Jody had to go into hiding. So you think that even all these years later, I mean, I know she wrote that piece in Esquire about it, mm-hmm. too. Still, there's still some sort of phobia or maybe PTSD with the stage. I'm kind sure of it is, and I'm, and I'm sure it's a, a, attaching that. You know, we found out afterward... John Hinckley was there. He mm. was actually right. stalking her at, in the audience, yeah. you know, at, at that show. Yeah. So then in college, what do you, what do you study? Uh, I studied uh, um, film. I, I, it, it was the year before they made film an official major. So uh, you had to create it as a special divisional major by pl- picking and choosing all of the different film courses from different uh, majors. So you knew that you wanted to be in film, and yep. that was a theme that kind of carried from an early age? Yep. So then when you're at school, what was that pizza place that you went to that you claim is the best place? The, uh, the Spot. Is it's, that still uh, there? It, it, yeah, it's still there, yeah. It's on Worcester Street, New Haven. It's uh, next door to Pepe's. It's actually kind of the uh, branch of Pepe's. And you enjoyed Yale? You feel like it give you, You feel like it grounded you in terms of the training that oh you received? Oh, my God, yes. I don't, I don't know about the training I received, but I, 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 had, I got a very good film studies education, uh, but also just in terms of all the other classes that I took and uh, the the you know, the people I met, yeah, it was it was a really extraordinary experience for me. And for my the, daughter's uh, uh, going into her junior year there now and is also having a great experience. What were the films there that you saw or maybe shortly kind of preceding that that kind of blew your mind a little oh bit? Oh, my God. What Some of the ones that jumped to mind, uh, uh, Breathless, Strangers on a Train, mm. uh, La Dolce Vita. Um, what about Kozlowski? Uh, oh, I didn't see Kozlowski until later. I was living in London when I saw the Decalogue for the first time, and that mm-hmm. certainly blew my mind. Yeah. Uh, um, I, w- I was, my senior year, I was the projectionist for the Feminist Film Society mm. and just saw a whole string of movies that blew my mind from uh, Lizzie Borden's Born in Flames mm. to uh, Nellie Ka- Kaplan's A Real Curious Girl. It uh, just went on and on. So what happens after college? You graduate, and then where do you go? Uh, I went to New York and worked in publishing and was very frustrated and trying to figure out how to get into film. And so uh, uh, my uncle was the Scorsese family doctor. Wow. And he got me an interview with Martin Scorsese, who was uh, in post on After Hours. Oh, my God. And uh, he was very kind and generous with his time. And I poured out my uh, teenage angst or post-teenage angst. And at the end of which he said, you want to make Hollywood movies? Go to USC or UCLA. You want yeah. to make independent movies? Go to NYU. Yeah. So I went to NYU. Uh, mm-hmm. But then I dropped out after a semester because I, I, at the same time that I was going to NYU film school, I was also uh, working as an assistant at a production company. Mm. And I realized that that was where my interests lay. Because uh, I was 
I thought I wanted to be a director, but then I went to film school and there were these people who were directors because uh, they just saw the world the way directors did. And working at the production company, I realized, oh, I see the world the way a producer does. So uh, at that, that time, NYU Film School only had one producing course. Uh, so I dropped out and went full-time at the production company. What's the difference in the view between a producer and a director? I think a, a, a producer sees the world in stories and doesn't necessarily understand or see how to tell those stories. Um, whereas I think most of the directors I know see the world in images and shots and, you know, for instance, uh, I got to work on a couple of movies with Todd Haynes, mm -hmm. and it, whenever Christine Vashon, his producer, suggests to Todd that they've got to cut something uh, for, for time or for money, you can see Todd watching the entire movie in his head and moving his hands in the air and running his eyes around uh, invisible space, and then he realizes, yeah, we can go from that to that to that, and that's going to work. I couldn't do that in a million years if you gave me a million dollars. Which movies did you produce with them? I, I didn't produce any. I was an executive on uh, Safe at Channel mm. 4 and then on Velvet Goldmine at Miramax. He's an interesting director. He's, did you see uh, that um, genius. Did you see that Karen Carpenter uh, I did. story that was the with the puppets? I did. the first thing I saw of his. It, that's a movie that blew me away. That's wild. So then, uh, all right, so you're in New York. You're kind of in, you're getting into the business. You're not going into publishing. Do you feel like um, that support from your parents, is that continuing? Is that, are you cluing them in on how you're feeling, like whatever neurosis you're going through at that time? <laughs> yeah, I, I, we've got a good relationship. I think I, uh, they were divorced by that point, but I, I was pretty much telling them everything. So what's the next thing? What do you do after that? Uh, well, then, uh, when I was working at the production company, Vanguard Films, uh, I met a producer named David Picker, who had a legendary Hollywood career. And uh, um, only a couple months after I met him, he uh, went to Columbia Pictures in LA, uh, and then he brought me along. So I suddenly found myself working at a, a studio in LA. I had to learn how to drive. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, the head of Columbia at the time was David Putnam, another legendary producer who made Chariots of Fire, uh -huh. The Killing Fields, uh -huh. local hero. Um, and the two of them were incredibly inspiring, and I had a wonderful year, and we made some of the worst movies in the history of <laughs> Hollywood, and we all got fired. So that was, uh, was that kind of your, um, your entry point into realizing how insane, basically, the Absolutely. business is? But that didn't prevent you, that didn't deter you from continuing to stick, stick with it, right? No, no, because I had had so much fun, and I got to meet all these amazing filmmakers and, uh, you know, build friendships and collaborations that I still have. When did you meet your wife through that, that Motown pizza classified? <laughs> you have so done your homework. <laughs> uh, I met my wife uh, when I moved to New York uh, in 1984. Uh, in fact, uh, 38 years ago, three days ago. Wow. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, I was working at Games Magazine as an intern, and she was working at Hagen dazs and uh, uh, we had a legendary date and uh, decided that we were all wrong for each other, but then we started <laughs> playing poker together okay. and fell in love over several months of playing poker. And didn't she, didn't she work at a, was it a bookstore with Mariska, Mariska Harjite? Jesus Christ. <laughs> You're These are things that resonated good. with me. Yeah, uh, yeah um, she worked at Book Soup on Sunset Boulevard uh, with the young Mariska Hargitay uh, long before Law and Order. And could she see what was to come in her career? With Mariska, no. Uh, she was just a very nice, uh, nice person who was remarkably attractive. Yeah. How do you feel about? Um, I like jumping around a lot. How do you feel about procedurals? Because I know your your wife liked ER. ER is, ER is one of my favorites, to yeah. be honest. Um, do you, because let's, I mean, your, your wife was with you through that experience of the she 12 was. She couldn't stand watching uh, the television sets for most of that week, but yeah. uh, she would come in and out and say funny things and uh, watch her favorite shows and then, uh, you know, walk away yeah. to preserve her sanity. So did that, um, how do you feel about procedurals? I've never been a big fan of procedurals, honestly. Um, I, one of the reasons I think the golden age of television is now is because television finally really embraced the power of serialization, mm -hmm. of developing storylines and characters, that it's the thing that television does uniquely well compared to any other medium. You can't do that in movies. It, you know, you can do it, I mean, the MCU is trying to prove that you can do it over, you know, a whole spate of movies, but... It, not the way that, you know, you can develop a character through, you know, multiple seasons right. of, of The Sopranos or Breaking Bad or what have you. 
Um, it's just, uh, uh, it's one of the powers of television. Uh, and that, that, so I love that. You know, I, I really get excited by a, a show that has a clever approach to serialization, like Lost, for instance. Mm. And uh, procedural shows, yeah, don't, don't tend to interest me that much. It's kind of interesting. I mean, one distinction you made between uh, television and feature film in the book is that in television, you take something that's a concept that's wondrous and you make it commonplace, whereas in film or in features, you take a concept that's commonplace and you basically magnify it um, uh, into something wondrous. So do you think that still has applied? Is that distinction between film and television still there? Or has that kind of gotten more murky over the years? I think it's gotten a lot murkier. Uh, I, funny, I don't remember saying that, but uh, when you think of... The, the way the barriers between film and uh, television have become so porous in the years since then that, you know, I was writing at a time when if you made it in movies, it was unthinkable for you to do television unless your career was really on the skids. Right. Um, and now there's not a single creative person who wouldn't do a television series if it were challenging and exciting. I mean, um, maybe even a commercial at yeah, this point, right? that's right. So... Yeah, I, I don't think that I don't think that's true anymore. I think you've got certainly plenty of examples of the commonplace made wondrous on television and uh, uh, the wondrous be made commonplace in movies. Uh, if you think of something like I don't know, uh, Spider-Man: Homecoming, you oh, know, yeah, where it's yeah. a superhero movie, but it's also a, a high school teen comedy. Yeah. That's interesting. So then, um, so in terms of that experience and all the experiences that you had, I mean, what kind of what resonates with you through that time of when you were kind of coming up in terms of the filmmakers that you saw, that you worked with? What interested you about the business that maybe didn't when you first sort of um, entered? What was, your, what was your baptism into, the, into that side of it? I guess it was first at, when I was at uh, Vanguard Films and I started doing something called development before anyone even explained to me what it was, yeah. which was just realizing, oh, you can find a piece of material and try and adapt it to another medium and work with incredibly talented, creative people and make that thing a reality. And that was just so exciting to me. And honestly, it's still so exciting to me after all these years. Um, that That's the most fun part of the whole process for me. So then um, was that, when did you end up going to London? Uh, I went to London after, I, I was in uh, Los Angeles for four years. We all got fired from Columbia Pictures. Yeah. I was out of work for a year and uh, wrote coverage to make a living, and my wife worked at a bookstore. Mm -hmm. uh, then I worked as a development person at uh, various uh, production companies. Uh, but then David Putnam, who had run Columbia Pictures, uh, had gone back to England, and uh, he had met with the new head of film at uh, Channel 4, David Aukin, and had recommended me. Uh, so it seemed like a crazy thing to do. Uh, so of course I did it. Have you been, had you been to London before? I had been to London before and had loved it and was excited to go back, but, uh, found that of course living there is very different from visiting there and living there and working there as an American had a lot of challenges because even though you're speaking the same language technically. Yeah. It's not the same culture. Right. People don't have the same shared frame of reference, and even individual words mean very different things. So it took a while of uh, getting the hang of it. So then when you were there, I mean, that's when you made uh, a lot of films, right? I mean, that's... I, I worked on a lot of films. I didn't make them, but as an executive, yeah, I got to work on uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral and Full The Crying Monty. Game and The Full Monty and Shallow Grave. Yeah, we, we had a really good run uh, because... The British film industry traditionally goes through sort of peaks and valleys, and it was in a real valley at the time. Yeah. So we were the only game in town. Everyone had to work with us, and we had our pick of all this incredible talent, and uh, and we made some really good choices. The film Monty, that's an exceptional, exceptional film. It I love uh, film. Wilkinson in that. Yeah. He's incredible. So good. Did you see, I mean, him and Michael, him and, uh, Michael Clayton, yeah. but then in that. He's a tremendous actor. Yeah, tremendous. Great range. It's great to see that. So then uh, is that kind of when, how do you end up meeting Bob and Harvey? I mean, where does that uh, relationship well, start? Well, when I was at Channel 4, yeah. uh, we did several co-productions with Miramax. Uh, we did, uh, oh God, what were they? Uh, a, a legendarily terrible horror movie called Dust Devil, where hmm. everything went wrong. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, 
uh, a pretty good movie called Into the West uh, mm-hmm. that Jim Sheridan directed. Yeah. And I think even a couple of others. Uh, and then they bought The Crying Game, which we had made. Um, and I think the first time I met Harvey Weinstein was at the Oscar party for The Crying Game. Uh, also, um, yeah, and there, there were a couple of other connections. So, But, but I actually went back to... America to work at HBO. I was mm. there for a year and a half. Right. And then I got poached to work at Miramax and spent three years there working on fantastic movies with fantastic talent, things like Goodwill Hunting yeah. and uh, uh, Chicago and Shakespeare in Love, um, but also, you know, working directly for Harvey Weinstein, who is a monster, uh, mm. a genius, but a monster. I didn't know how monstrous at the time. I've only found out in the Past revelations year, yeah. of the last uh, five years. Uh, and in fact, uh, I got to work as a uh, consulting producer on the documentary Untouchable, Untouchable uh, yeah. uh, about Weinstein. So um, honestly, I wouldn't, I, I, I think I've kind of said everything I was going to say about Harvey in, in that documentary. So people should watch the documentary, which is really good. And didn't he write, isn't he on the back of your, uh, your yeah, book? Yeah, he wrote a blurb for my book. I, what can I say? It didn't age well. Him and uh, Fran Leibovitz, right? Yeah, who's my cousin. No way. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. That's really interesting. All right, so then you're there. Um, you're at Mirror de Max. So do you kind of, are you sort of, when they when you say that they poach you, do you become the head of, um, you know, head of development there yep. right off the bat? Yeah, yeah, I was, I was hired to do that. And uh, it was it was a weird structure that... Uh, some studios have had in the past. Uh, it's more or less the relationship that uh, David Brown had at Fox uh, in the late 60s, early 70s. But it, it was this weird structure where they actually kind of, instead of making me like a director of development reporting to all the VPs, I was head of development to whom the VPs reported. But it actually kind of worked. And it, frankly, it's one of the reasons that I think our movies came out really well is we worked like hell on the scripts. Uh, and... I kind of think more studios should adopt that model. Because, I mean, a film like Good Will Hunting, and you mentioned that mm-hmm. kind of the differences or the distinction between actual therapy, the topic that you've explored in group more recently, yeah. and that. But still, I mean, that script uh, that I guess Ben and Matt wrote, mm-hmm. that was rejected a lot, right? I mean, didn't wasn't there a Castle well, Rock involvement before yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a long story, which yeah, I actually yeah. tell my students uh, in, in one of my classes. But uh, it, it, they had... They had written it uh, as, uh, you know, out-of-work, aspiring actors, uh, inspired by Sylvester Stallone's story of Rocky, oh, where he yeah. wrote a part for himself yeah. and uh, wouldn't let anyone make it unless right. he starred in it. So they did the same. But being very smart guys, they also wrote this giant part for a movie star who they imagined would be Jack Nicholson. Mm. Um, and then they took it and sold it, and every studio wanted it. It was a huge bidding war, and Castle Rock won. At, but at the time, the script was a thriller. Uh, wow. It was uh, Matt, uh, you know, being chased by uh, various agents of various governments to oh. use his math powers. Interesting. Um, and when he got to uh, Castle Rock, Rob Reiner said, I've got one note. It's not a thriller. Yeah. And he said, really? He said, yep, really. It's enough that he's just a genius from South Boston. Uh, and then they brought in William Goldman as a consultant for a day, and William Goldman said, Rob's right, it's not a thriller. Yeah. So they rewrote it as not a thriller, uh, but then Castle Rock uh, put the film in turnaround, which means uh, they didn't want to make it, but uh, if they could get it set up in another studio right. that would pay them back their development money, which was quite a lot because it had been a bidding war, mm-hmm. um, they would let someone else have it. And Miramax was the only studio that wanted it because it wasn't a thriller anymore. It didn't seem commercial right. anymore. Plus, it was tainted goods because Castle Rock didn't want to make it. Yeah, there you go. So Miramax was the only studio, and uh, Miramax bought it, I think, literally like two weeks before I got there. And was Gus Van Zandt always the... No, on the contrary. Uh, um, Gus was actually a very early choice for it, but Gus uh, had final cut on his movies, and Harvey Weinstein wouldn't give him final cut. So we spent well over six months looking at all kinds of directors. Uh, you know, Everyone wanted to make it. Uh, Steven Soderbergh wanted to direct it. Oh, he wow. was ice cold at the time. Uh, Sidney Lumet wanted to do it. Mm. Uh, you know, all, all kinds of people. But uh, finally, uh, the brilliant executive at Miramax, John Gordon, worked out a deal where uh, Gus could get Final Cut if the movie scored uh, higher than basically any Miramax movie ever had in its mm. test screening. And it did. 
and uh, so God's God is final cut. Do you think that thing that uh, Art Linson, your old boss, said to you about starting with, like, it's just the different models of filmmaking. Like, you can start with something that's quote-unquote dumb and then make it smart, let it evolve uh, into something smart, or, and that'll, that'll generally do well. I mean, that's the experience of heat, right? That's kind of mm-hmm. that parallel. But Or you can start with something that's smart and then go dumb, which mm-hmm. people do, but that doesn't work. Or you can start with something smart and then let it evolve into smartness, but then it's not going to make any money. Mm-hmm. So do you think Goodwill was kind of that first thing? Because you think about on the surface, there's a guy from South Boston, he's going to have these two worlds, but he's a genius. So it's about him sort of retaining his identity, but then figuring out what his uh, evolving identity is. I mean, is that and does that fit into that? I don't think it does. And, and honestly, I think that's kind of the limit of art's construct, as you know, clever as it is, uh, in that... Goodwill Hunting is sort of, you know, truth wrapped in a fairy tale, wrapped in the semblance of truth. Mm. Um, Gus always saw it as a fairy tale, as the, you know, it's uh, the Joseph Campbell, Hero of a Thousand Faces, yeah. you know, the young prince goes into the world and, uh, you know, he has to choose between the good wizard and the bad wizard mm. and save the maiden and slay the dragon. Uh, but at the same time, underneath it, it's actually coming out of Matt and Ben. They're not. It's not autobiographical, but it's very personal. Yeah. Uh, you know, Skyler, the girl that uh, um, Minnie Driver plays, right. is named for Matt's love, who he lost uh, at Harvard, who then married Lars Ulrich, the drummer of Metallica. Wow. Um, she's even named Skyler. They didn't even change the huh. name. Uh, and at the same time, then Gus very cleverly put this veneer of naturalism on top of the fairy tale. So, yeah, it's sort of like a truth sandwich. Uh, and in the middle is pure Hollywood fairy tale. And then, and, but the, and that, that works. The supporting performances, though, from Goldhauser and Casey, I mean, yeah, they helped great. bring so much grit to that. But then Robin, I mean, how long, was Robin there for a while? Or just, <laughs> a, I mean, he was only there he, for he, a few. Yeah, I mean, I, I was not on the set. So, uh, you know, he... Uh, he, uh, I, I can't tell you what he was like on the set, yeah. but uh, you know, it, it took a long time to get to the idea of Robin Williams in that part. You know, they'd written it for Nicholson. I don't think we ever went to Nicholson, mm-hmm. but uh, Mel Gibson was looking at Ooh. playing Sean and directing the movie. Oh. Uh, we offered it to Harrison Ford, who said no. Um, we went to a couple other more obvious people before getting to Robin Williams, who frankly wasn't an obvious idea for it. Uh, but of course, he couldn't have been better. Yeah, I mean, it was great. And that last line, I mean, to my understanding, he ad-libbed it, right? Yes, he the, did. Uh, uh, he stole my line, yeah. that one, right? There, 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 there's, the movie is full of ad-libbing. It's one of the things I, I use the film for in my class, which is it. the thing I learned on that movie was that before that time, I had spent so much time and energy writing very, very detailed notes on every draft of every script, mm. you know, down to the lines and uh, phrasing of individual right. lines. And then I saw the first cut of Goodwill Hunting, uh, and I just had this revelation at that screening. Oh, my God, I've been wasting so much time, so much energy, and so much of the time and energy of the people who have to suffer through my notes. <laughs> and then I, I, I suddenly flipped. Uh, all that matters in writing notes is getting the structure right, getting the structure right and the characters right. And don't worry about the dialogue. All that stuff will take care of itself. Did you ever think about Ben as a director at that time? I did, only because I saw his first short film, which was frankly terrible. And I thought, well, he can do a lot of things, but he can't do that. (laughs) I could not have been more wrong, and I'm delighted to have been wrong. Yeah, he turned uh, (laughs) turned stuff around. So then when you do that, and you also make... um, the Cider House rules and Guinevere, right? Yeah. I and mean, that was during that time. That so, certainly was, yeah. Because Guinevere... I really like. Yeah. Paul, Sarah Pauly, I mean, she's... Oh, my God. She's incredible. She's, she's super underrated, I think. And then Cider House rules, I mean, you have a lot of heavyweights like Michael Caine and mm-hmm. Toby was in that. Um, what about those projects, sort of? What led them to be... Um, you know, what, what sort of gravitated you towards them? Well, again, remember, I was an executive, yeah. so I'm also working on whatever is in front of me. Uh, Cider House Rules had already been in development for many years before mm-hmm. I got to Miramax. Uh, Guinevere came in, and I think I immediately took to it and advocated it because I just was such a fan of Audrey Wells, the very sadly late writer-director mm-hmm. who was just 
brilliant. Um, but in both of those cases, I thought there was a unique voice. Yeah. There was, uh, you know, a story that was worth telling. Uh, Side House Rules, I'm very proud to have worked on because it's a radical movie. It's not just the most pro-choice movie ever made. Mm. It's sure. possibly the only pro-abortion movie ever made. Yeah. Uh, Cider House Rules, in both John Irving's book and in the screenplay, takes the position that abortion is a positive good for society yeah. and depriving women of the ability to uh, have a pre and legal abortion is tragic. Um, I don't think there's been many other movies that have gone that far. No. Yeah. Interesting. So then, when do you? So then, you eventually decide to leave. It's kind of interesting about Guinevere. You mentioned that because in the book, um, there's an element where you're in that juxtaposition of watching all this, you know, mostly bad TV. But then, someone, uh, I think it was on the you, Today Show. Yeah, exactly. You get Guinevere. a review. Gene, yeah. uh, he gives you like a really good review, and you say, "Wow, that I really enjoyed that. That was great." And then you kind of go back <laughs> to that mix. Was it weird? Because I know you also made the conscious decision to not watch certain shows that you would normally watch, like Jeopardy. I mean, how did that, what was that feeling like? It was, was it just a constant, like, bipolarity of liking yeah. something, hating something, going back It was back that, there? and also just, you know, I had made this conscious decision to just throw myself down the rabbit hole and expose myself to all the stuff on television that I would never watch otherwise, yeah. just to see what is it actually like out there. And, um, and then you saw Martha Stewart talking to someone that irons... For a living, so exactly. you kind of learn that. Did you ever think about revisiting that during the uh, pandemic? Because uh, no, I never want to go back to that room again. <laughs> That's, so it's kind of like Jodie Foster in theater. You never want to. You don't want to touch that area again. I'm sorry. Well, it's like Jodie Foster doesn't want to oh, do yeah. plays. So yeah, it's, you're yeah, absolutely right. Thing. So then, what do you do after that? I mean, you you're still you decide to leave Miramax because you felt what are you feeling? Well, I had another out, epiphany, or? which was I mean. It, I'll, some of it was the difficulty of working for Harvey Weinstein for three years, mm -hmm. but some of it also was I realized by the end of my time there that I I was working on 75 projects at once, wow. plus dealing with the 100 scripts that were coming in every week. And uh, of those 75, I liked maybe 25, and I loved maybe five. Mm -hmm. And I thought, hey, if I were a producer, I could just work on the five that I loved. Right. And that's what happened. So for the last 22 years, I've been a producer. Um, I, of course, there's a trade-off, which is, as an executive, you're getting paid. Yeah, <laughs> and true. You Salary, have benefits, yeah. and yeah. Uh, you know you have an expense account, and uh, you know a lot of things are easier in your life. Everyone takes your calls. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, I'm glad I made the trade. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's. Um, it's one thing to be in film and be creatively fulfilled, but if you're in the industry that you want to be in and you're not, then it kind of begs the question, like, what the hell are you doing, right, That's on some exactly level? So right. then one movie um, that, uh, that I definitely want to talk about is uh, that you worked on is Blue Valentine, mm -hmm. because I remember seeing that, and I'd known about uh, Derek C. and Friends a little bit because I read uh, when I was, must have been in high school, I was, uh, this was really random, I, I saw that he went to, film school in Colorado because I saw a brochure for that and he was one of their sort of alumni on the rise. Wow. And um, yeah, that film really impacted, because I think I was in high school at the time, to be honest, that mm -hmm. really impacted how I viewed relationships because I hadn't seen them. Yeah, <laughs> maybe a little bit. As my wife I, says, it's the worst date movie ever. Yeah, maybe. I mean, they have a great first date. It's mm -hmm. the stuff after that when yep. they have the kid and then also some of the... Uh, the stuff with uh, you know Michelle Williams' parents—that's mm -hmm. a little kind of gritty. So, yeah. I mean, how do you do? You kind of recognize when you meet Derek when you see the script that this this is going to be something special and true. Honestly, yes. Um, every once in a while, as a producer, you're just incredibly fortunate to meet a true artist and and recognize that artist. And that was the case with Derek. My wife was programming film festivals and she saw his first film, Brother Tide, mm. which he made for no money with no professional actors in Colorado over yeah. a period of years. And she showed it to me. She said, you've got to watch this thing. And I watched it and I was like, oh man, this is a real filmmaker. This is someone who has stuff he wants to say. He's got skill with the camera, he's got skill with actors, he's the complete package. And then I met him at the Sundance Film Festival and just fell in love with him. 
Yeah. Um, and we, uh, he moved to New York, and we started hanging out. And then we did a documentary about crime photography together for Court TV, and uh, started developing Blue Valentine, which Derek had already been uh, developing with uh, his co-writer Joey Curtis. Mm. And uh, the the thing that kept me going through the nine years it took to get Blue Valentine made was just my total belief in Derek. Why did it take so long? Uh, oh, because nobody wants to make a depressing art movie. Mm. Oh. You know, actors <laughs> couldn't wait to be in it. Uh, yeah. You know, every actor in Friends wanted to be in Blue Valentine. You could have made the Matt LeBlanc, Lisa Kudrow version of Blue Valentine. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we Derek had very specific ideas about how he wanted to make the movie. He wanted to shoot the past uh, on film and then take a break and improv the uh, actors through the time in between and then shoot the present on video uh, and so people balked at that, but mostly people didn't want to make a depressing art film. Uh, it, it was only when we finally got the right actors at the right time when they were worth the budget, and it, it all fell together. Yeah, I mean, Gosling and uh, Michelle Williams, Williams, you know, yeah. who were just perfect, and it was at the exact moment where we could get them, but they meant enough that they could bring us the budget that we needed to make the movie. Yeah, man, that scene when uh, they're in that hotel or that hotel room and... Uh, that was the day I was on set. Wow. And, uh, yeah, she she's basically offering him, uh, you know, quote, according to her, her, her body. And he's like, mm-hmm. I don't want that. Mm-hmm. I want you to be intimate with me. And that's that really kind of affects you. You think, oh, yeah. wow, because uh, you think once you have um, marriage and you have a kid that everything's kind of going to align. But when it doesn't, it's, yeah, it's upsetting. I'm so sorry to have warped your entire <laughs> view of relationships <laughs> at a young good. age. Can we talk about uh, game shows a little bit? Because sure. you're uh, you've been a frequent contestant and yep. a winner. So uh, is it true that you're uh, you've wagered and most lost on the the? It the, was the, true until just Jeopardy. about a year ago. Uh, uh, I had a, I, in 1988. I set a record for uh, wagering and losing the most money in Final Jeopardy. Yeah. Uh, that lasted for 30 plus years, but it was finally broken by Madame Odio. Mm. Uh, and uh, actually, a couple times since then, is that does that come from the poker interest? Just it the was. Risk? Thank you. Yeah, it was because uh, when I was preparing to go on Jeopardy, I read a book called "The Biggest Game in Town" by A. Alvarez hmm. about uh, professional poker players, and I was very struck by the way that to become a professional poker player, you have to divorce the uh, value of the chips from their value as money. You just have to think of it as points. Oh, interesting. Uh, and so that was the approach I took when I went on Jeopardy, which is this is points, this isn't money. And uh, I, I played really boldly in my first three games, and uh, that was part of why I won. But then I, I made this huge wager and lost. I wagered and lost $15,000. Wow. I still won that game. But that, that was the Friday game, which is the end of a shooting day. They shoot mm. all, a, a week in a day. So I had a night to sleep on it before the Thursday game, which is, uh, uh, excuse me, a night to sleep on it before the Monday game, which yeah. is the next game of the, the first game of the next day. And I had I couldn't stop myself from realizing I just bet and lost a car, uh, <laughs> and I I lost my mojo and I couldn't get it back and I squeaked through my fourth game and I lost my fifth. They shoot a week a day on that show. Yeah, that's how it works. So, I mean, you talked about that, like the hosts of these shows, like Bob Barker on The Price is Right. I mean, they, these guys are doing so much heavy lifting that I don't, that people just don't recognize. It is the most unsung job in show business. Going on Wheel of Fortune, watching how good Pat Sajak is at his job, it was dazzling to me. Because you're not working with performers, you're working That's with right. people that don't perform. That's right. And you have to get them to hit their marks and bring the best out of them and keep a firm hand on the game. And when you see someone who really knows what they're doing, it's I, 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 I'm still in awe every time I watch Wheel of Fortune. And you think, you say that Regis is like that Regis too, Regis was right? like that on Millionaire. And honestly, I think Ken Jennings and uh, yeah. Maya Bialik are getting better and better at Jeopardy. I, I'm, I'm enjoying both of them a lot. So when you were on Millionaire, on that last question, the $250,000 question <laughs> about how much the losing team, the person on the losing team gets in the Super Bowl, so you use the, you decide, so you call someone. Who did you call? I, I, I called my cousin Larry, who worked for the NBA and who knew sports, but he didn't know the answer to the question. And I still had the 50-50 on the table. I could take away two of the wrong answers yeah. and just have one wrong answer and one right answer. 
and I just made a quick mental calculation and realized I know nothing about sports. Yeah. But if I'm down to two answers, I'm going to be tempted to guess, and I have absolutely no business guessing. And then I realized I've just got to walk away. Interesting. Um, because I'm pr sure that whatever the two answers were, the odds were I would have picked the wrong answer. Wow. I was thinking about that because I think you had uh, your because Larry said it's going to be C or D. Yeah. So I was thinking, like, why wouldn't you just eliminate? But that's interesting. So you would. So you decided to keep the one one twenty five. Yeah. Uh, and uh, did something smart with it, which was I put it in the stock market and did something stupid with it, which was I bought a car for cash. <laughs> and the car ran for 10 years, uh -huh. and uh, all the stock market tanked. And, uh, you know, what we think is smart is not always smart. Yeah, wow, that's worse to live by. So then when do you end up going, um, when do you end up, like, teaching and getting into that? I guess that was in the early 2000s. Uh, I guess about 2004, I got asked to uh, teach a class uh, first by Andy Beenan at uh, Columbia. Mm -hmm. um, I, I taught a seminar on development. And then uh, NYU uh, asked me to teach uh, their intro uh, producing class for undergraduate film. Mm -hmm. And I did that for nine years. And at first, I, I you know just had a ball. And then I realized, wait a minute, I don't know what I'm doing. No one ever taught me how to teach. Oh, yeah. And then I took a semester off and actually went to the uh, NYU's, uh, um, uh, okay, the Columbia version is the Center for Teaching and Learning. I can't even remember what the NYU mm. equivalent is. Yeah. But uh, I, I actually tried to teach myself how to teach um, or at least get a couple of principles that would help me and then went back to it and you know, just worked on being a better teacher uh, semester after semester. And then after a while, I actually, Ira Deutschman brought me in to um, teach at Columbia uh, and uh, first teaching a class that we created called The Business of Television, and then a class I'm still teaching called uh, Writing and Script Analysis for Producers. So for three years, I was uh, adjuncting at both NYU and Columbia, and then uh, the uh, line opened up in uh, creative producing at Columbia, and I've been here full-time now for uh, 10 years. Wow, and what's been your experience? Because I, when I think about the legacy of Columbia Film, I mean, it's very significant. I think that when I, the, who I go back to is, you know, Mr. Foreman, who, who passed, mm -hmm. and, uh, and then ultimately Lisa Cholodenko was here, mm -hmm. Catherine Bigelow, James Mangold. I mean, yeah. these are some heavy hitters that have made some really impactful yep. films. So, I mean, do you, do you think about that legacy and the legacy before them in terms of your, your role as, as chair of film? Yeah, all the time. Uh, you know, you're trying to live up to the, you know, people who've taught here in the past and studied here in the past, including, you know, uh, uh, Frank Danielle, who was a legendary Czech uh, teacher of screenwriting who Milos Forman brought in and who then really uh, formed the modern Columbia writing program and then went to USC and did the same thing there. Uh, and who is really one of the geniuses of film analysis. Uh, he was the first person to kind of break down the elements of the classic three-act, eight-sequence structure. Um, and I'm one of many professors at Columbia who still teach his work and try and pass on his legacy. Wow, that's pretty remarkable. So then as we kind of wrap up, um, one thing that I, I definitely want to touch on is just the song parodies and then also the... <laughs> The lyrical work, because I know you're working with, um, aside from the song parodies, I know you've worked on the independent, you know, um, the Spirit Awards, right? Yeah, I did that for eight years. So what's the difference, or is there a, I assume there's a difference, between doing something like that and then supplying the lyricism to the musical ad adaptation of Ron Shelton's Blaze? I mean, how do you, are you thinking about it when you think about satire versus something literal, I mean, coming from an adaptation, is there a difference in how your brain sort of works? Oh, yeah. You're using some of the same skills, but it's very different. Writing a good song parody is almost like doing a, a crossword puzzle and improv comedy at the same time, in that uh, you, you have to fill in the blanks of a structure that has already been created, and you also have to put the rhymes in the right places, put the jokes in the right places. Mm -hmm. You have to have a comic stance. You have to decide what is funny about this uh, approach to this this material. Um, whereas when you're actually writing an original song, you're thinking about a completely different set of problems. You're actually thinking about what is the journey of the character in this moment? What is the conflict that's going on? What does the audience need to know? What 
has to change for the character from the beginning of the song to the end of the song. It's it's a whole different. And then you're you're working from there to figuring out what is the form of the song, what is the structure of the song. Uh, so it, it's kind of the the same thing upside down. Wow, interesting kind of muscle memory and and the division of that, the different skills that you use. So then, in terms of because um, when you think about when I think about song parodies and when I think about parody in general, I mean you you bring up Martin Short quite a bit <laughs> in the book, who is a genius. But then when he's it's a difference when then when he's on SCT or when he's on SNL, then when he's hosting his own show, which was not a success, although I enjoyed it. Yeah, okay, that's good. Um, so then uh, when you look at that, I mean, a lot of the SCTV guys, and I think you mentioned that, like Moranis, mm-hmm. they kind of get into their their niche, their, their fragment, where he's always played nerds, even though he's in that environment. If there were to be an SCTV reunion, mm-hmm. um, I would hope that Chris Guest is involved in some way in that, but they're sort of more in their element and they're doing something that's really vital because when i think about that in parody i kind of compare it to that emerald because you bring up emerald lagasse too <laughs> that um that element of just those catchphrases like bam and uh you know turn it up a notch because it ends up being so kitschy and almost that pavlovian thing of the guys saying that we need to add some garlic and the audience is howling which i think <laughs> is a bad thing so where do you think that that line between kitschiness and campiness and the value of parody that you see on early SNL, where do you think that line is drawn, and how do you cultivate that balance? Boy, that, I think we could take a, a year to unpack yeah. all the things in that question. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, the point of a parody is to make people laugh, but it's also to do it in such a way that, you know, uh, in, in, in one way it's kind of an easy laugh because you're building on something that the audience already knows, that the listener already knows, um, so you have a head start. Um, but at the same time, you want to kind of use that to get to a place that, uh, you know, something might sneak through that people might not even be aware of. Um, you know, I think the, the most powerful parodies and satires do that. I grew up on Mad Magazine, mm-hmm. and the best Mad Magazine parodies were not just parodic and that they weren't just making fun of something, but they were actually satiric. They were actually making points by making fun of something. Um, they were, uh, you know, I, I think of things like, uh, there, there were, the, the best Mad Magazine parodies were actually rooted in a critique mm-hmm. of, you know, what wasn't working or what was unsatisfying about television or about movies. Um, and in writing all those parodies for the uh, Independent Spirit Awards, it was a tricky line to walk because the people you're making fun of are in the room yeah. and you don't want to offend them. But at the same time, you have to figure out what's funny about this movie that you could draw out, you know, whether it's, you know, the inappropriate age difference between Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson and uh, Luster Translation, mm-hmm. or sometimes it's the, the m- means you choose for your parody, the song you choose to parody a movie, you know, could actually then say something about the movie. Like, uh, you know, uh, I, we did one for uh, Good Night and Good Luck, George mm-hmm. Clooney's movie about uh, Ed Murrow, uh, or Ed Murrow yeah. and uh, did it to the tune of uh, the Beverly Hillbillies theme song. And just the sheer <laughs> unlikeliness of that somehow uh, made something very funny. And you've made, uh, you know, a few documentaries as well. Um, Fog of War comes mm-hmm. to mind about, you know, Bob McNamara. Yep. But then um, you have another one coming out, right? Keeping Up with the Jones. Uh, yeah, that, that, that'll that come out one of these days. It's a brilliant filmmaker named Rob Levy. It's a, a very good documentary about uh, the three Jones brothers uh, who uh, spanned 20th century jazz, Hank Jones, uh, Elvin Jones, and Thad Jones. Yeah, Elvin Jones. He's one of my favorites. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, really, uh, this was great. I mean, this was great it's for me. It's been such it was a pleasure, for you. Thank yeah, you so much. I, I definitely uh, really I, I'm enjoyed... I'm stunned by how much research you've done. No, it was good. I, it was easy research because I love um, <laughs> the work that you've done, especially that book. I mean, like I said, wow. I really couldn't put it down, and I think there's so many gems in that. People really need to revisit that. It's um, been long out of print. Uh, you're probably one of the only living people who's ever, ever read the book, besides my daughter, who keeps it by her bed and reads it when she's having trouble going to sleep. No, it's um, it's a very it's it's been a very uh, interesting read, and I think if Charles Sopkin were around, I think he would definitely be enamored by 
the fact that he was able to inspire that and then the different the results how they kind he of he was married. the guy who wrote uh, a book called seven glorious days seven fun-filled nights in 1967 where he did this by watching six television sets at once for a week and that yeah that inspired my book yeah you showed him well uh thanks so much and uh yeah and you're happy overall generally yeah i gotta say i am i'm, I'm, I'm enjoying being uh, chair of film in columbia because I, I i think the program is the strongest it's ever been and uh we just keep getting these remarkable students every year and the faculty is 